An increasing number of countries are adopting laws and regulations designed to protect the privacy of citizens by defining how data can be securely collected, stored, and used. This rise of digital sovereignty is the result of governments, organizations, and companies becoming concerned about their dependence on foreign cloud infrastructure providers. Welcome to the Security Sessions podcast, brought to you by Talis and hosted by me, Steve Prentice. In this third season of the podcast series, we'll continue to discuss the technologies, the people, and the processes behind information security and delve into topics like data security in the cloud, quantum computing, and even the psychology behind cybercrime. In this episode, we are joined by Nellie Porter, Head of Product, Google Cloud Confidential Computing, and Todd Moore, Vice President of Encryption Products at Talus. So welcome, Nellie. Welcome, Todd. Thank you so much, Steve, for having me to this in this wonderful podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to see you and hear you both. So let's just get started. It, it seems that every day we're hearing stories in the news about growing concerns that focus on data and its use and its access by companies and countries and governments. So let's start, first of all, with some definitions. You know, we have data sovereignty, operational sovereignty, and software sovereignty. So how are they related and how do they differ? Nelly, what's, what's the difference? I think they all the layers of sovereignty and we defining them sometimes maybe not very naturally for protecting data, something that we're familiar with and been familiar for quite some time. Operational sovereignty when not only data is protected, but who is operate this environment is actually trustworthy. And the final software sovereignty is ability for you for this independent entity to operate completely independent from software provider, from, again, services provider. And it's being necessary, I think, in different situation of this particular digital sovereignty story. Huh? No, yeah, I think you know it, Nelly. I mean, um, from, from our perspective, digital sovereignty, there's a lot of different definitions out there from my perspective. It, it's really about having that ability to control uh, your own digital destiny, if you will, when it comes to data and software and, and operations. Um, it's funny from a, a sovereignty perspective, it's kind of a loaded term. I, I asked my family uh, recently, because I knew we were doing this podcast, Nelly, what, what does sovereignty mean to you? And and uh, it's it's weird, you know, outside the technical realm, when people hear the word sovereignty, they think of kingdom or ruling, you know, all, all those types of things. And I think that fits into what we do, right? We We don't build kingdoms, but what we want to do is give people control to manage things within their own physical space, within their own worlds. And, and that does include digital items like software. And are you referring to you know, people on an individual level or are you looking more sort of in a corporate level or state level? I think in my examples, it's more again enterprises, corporates, governments, Again, everybody that actually have to provide or consume those environments, not consumers. But you're absolutely right. Consumers is also trying to get the heads around what <laughs> definitions and what we're talking about, because a lot of our customers have end users as their customers. So this all interconnected world of privacy, security, and operational independence and control 
to add transparency to this wonderful uh, set of principle, it's all what's very close to consumers, enterprises, and government. Nelly, just to, just to add to that, I, I like the word that you used there, the transparency world word. I think that um, is a key part of this concept of sovereignty. It's really organizations, uh, whether it's it's Google or it's a social media application or whatever it might be, uh, given transparency to, um, it could be individuals, companies, enterprises, as you said, uh, about how their data is being used and um, what what organizations are doing to help those folks protect that data. And sometimes it's through compliance and regulations, but it doesn't have to be. It's, it's really, I like that word transparency, really showing someone you know, that a company cares about what's happening with the data and giving that visibility back to that individual or that, that person or that organization. And honestly, Todd, we've both been in the world of encryption and data protection for so, so many years. And without transparency, there is no security around this data protection because, again, the whole principles that we always operate you need to not only trust us, but verify. And to be able to verify the principles that we are going with, transparency is absolute mandatory requirement. Now, has this increased in pace or severity in the last few years? I mean, we're seeing so many other areas of technology seemingly rise an exponential curve of intensity. So are you seeing that this is becoming an even more pressing issue or an even more endangered issue? Is there a similar kind of rise that we're seeing or is this a, a, a pro, just a progression from the, the years that you sim, since, you, since you first started? In my view, it was always there, but it's definitely intensified uh, in the last three, five, seven years. And I think it's also based on more increasing understanding of privacy or some concept of privacy as a human right. <laughs> some things that we demand and we expect from our government, enterprises, cloud providers, companies. And it's actually interesting for me to see as a trend, as the demand and, again, focus on privacy from all parties as a result, transparency and all other things is increasing. It's very interesting that from some side it felt, especially in uh, consumer side and social media side, that the demand for privacy is actually decreasing and people sharing very freely so many information online without consequences that it's coming with. So it's kind of very interesting for me to see these both trends coalesce and coming together, but as more people sharing, I think the more they trusting, as more respectful and accountable we, again, vendors and providers of these services have to be to treat this information, even when some of our users don't think about consequences uh, of oversharing. Good feedback about how. Um sovereignty and, and awareness of sovereignty has grown. I, I, I know there is the compliance, uh, the regulations and, and the laws that are help driving um, some of that awareness. But I agree with you, it's always been around, um, you know, it's always been an issue. Um, you, you wanna maintain some level of ownness of your data when it leaves your organization, but there's also a risk. And, and I think what you just hit on there was, you know, it's a personal risk and some some social media applications, you'll accept more risk on the personal data you put out there, where with the company data, 
you know, you'll, you don't, you can't accept as much risk because of, you know, different laws or just, you know, you're protecting your, your customers. So I, I do think there's a continuum there. Uh, sovereignty has always been a piece. It has come more to the forefront, though, um, because, again, of those laws and, and regulations. But but also, I think there's more of an awareness as, as well, too. I think we hear more in the press now where um, different applications, um, I'm sorry to pick on social media applications, but maybe it's the automotive bill industry, pick another industry, where there's more um, high-level data breaches or there's, there's exfiltration of personal data, which really puts um, the highlight back on the company itself about how are you protecting my data and making sure that it was being protected in the right way. And when you bring sovereignty into the play, part of that protection, and you mentioned encryption. Now, Lane, I love encryption, as you know, that's, that's what I do every day. But part of encryption is, is a way to protect data and keep it um, within your ownership, but also in the confines of a particular, perhaps uh, physical region of the world or within a particular company. So Absolutely. And to add, it's very interesting. You, you probably said that the amount of data breaches <clears throat> is increasing enormously. I actually watching Tala's site. You have really interesting way to collect information. I'm continuously for many years a big, big, uh, again, interested in data. But what, what is also astonishing in my mind that right now that smaller breaches when people leak in I don't know ten thousand hundred thousand of social security numbers or or uh, your passwords is becoming norm <laughs> it's like people looking for something completely bombardic it's like when you're talking about millions of these particular individuals or companies so the level of sophistication of our adversaries are growing and the level of our protection of customer and user privacy is continuing to evolve. And you're absolutely right, encryption, and we both love encryption because we spend so much time together on that, is the way how we can help customers, is the kind of the base, the base and the best tool to provide protection and limited access and everything that it needs. And it's so important for sovereignty as a principle and the fundamental piece that we can use for data sovereignty in particular. Let's just dig into that just a little bit more because what you're really touching on there is the human side of this, which is uh, uh, a great in theory. I mean, obviously you are both uh, intense practitioners of this particular thing, but there's so many challenges that we have with organizations where end users just don't want to get into the whole encryption thing. You know, even something as simple as, as just simple password management. So we have a, a challenge, I think, right on the on the ground floor when we're looking at encryption and data protection and data sovereignty with the, the end users, the human beings, um, either not being willing to participate or perhaps not even finding the time to do it. You know, organizations supporting this from a cultural standpoint, giving people a chance to, to learn how to be more safe with their data. Have you observed any um, positive developments in organizations from, a, let's say, a management strategy perspective, enabling their teams to practice this correctly? Now, if it's okay, I'll take this one first, because I think that uh, Google Cloud, you guys do this very well in, in terms of what you're talking about, Steve. I, I think that for, we talked about sovereignty always being there, but if you go in the years past, um, it was a lot of 
um, organizations, cloud service providers would say, you, the consumer, it's your job to protect your information. It's your job to put those controls in place, like encryption. And you're right, encryption is is math, but it's 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 a difficult thing that needs to be implemented and managed over time. And you know, companies like Talos can help you do those types of things, but it does take some work and there's some effort there. Um, what I've seen happen over the last several years, and Google's been leading this, is really putting templates in place and giving options and opportunities for Google customers to really um, be able to take advantage of security that's native into um, an application or infrastructure like Google, but also gives you the templates and the options to do best practices, right? I think that's the important thing that your organizations are looking for. They're looking for what's the way best way for me to secure my information. And if there's a template I can use, we can help protect that information and not do all the, the silly things that might happen or the silly misconfigurations might happen that your data might get lost. So a lot of different opportunities um, working with Google to allow you to do that. And I also see more of a trend of folks uh, being willing to opt uh, out of things versus opt in. So when it comes to security, too often, folks are said, okay, uh, you need to do security, but you need to opt into it. You need to do something. And people find that hard to do to check that box to opt in. I think a lot of organizations, and again, I, I think Google does a good job at this, is the security is already built there. And I mean, if you really want to be silly and turn it off, well, that's, that's your own fault. But most people don't. So, so I think companies are taking uh, the stand that they have to provide a secure platform, a basis at first, and then others can build on top of it. So I hope that made sense. Nellie, I don't know if you want to add anything on there, but that's, uh, that's kind of a view. I think it's very important topic <laughs> and it's very important topic and close topic to my heart. And the reason why when Steve mentioned, as I heard, is that humans need to enable encryption, I was started to smile because I think they should not. And they should not even hear the word encryption. And it's exactly what, again, we're trying to make. And Google, I do believe, pioneering this approach that usability and security is not something that you have to choose. It has to go both to add performance and scale. For example, when we created confidential computing and announced it to the world, we specifically picked the three principles. It, customers should not do anything. They lift and shift the environments to this confidential world, and it works. There is no encryption. There is no discussion about how complicated the whole entire silicon and CPUs and memory controllers, whatever. It doesn't matter. People can simply check box or opt out <laughs> and get what they need with full encryption of the whole entire environment. So it's absolutely paramount to us to make these things built in or incredibly easy to use. And Steve, you bring in second example, and I love this example because in my previous life, I worked on authentication and two-factor authentication was a very interesting topic. Why people don't use it? We prove to them that second factor is important. Multi-factor, as more factor is better, all of that. And I think there's a difference, Steve, between encryption that we talk in Vistad and two-factor OAuth, because two-factor OAuth is complicated. You as user need to have second device. If somebody needs to send you code, your text doesn't come, you need to figure out to send another code. It's all mess. Imagine that you don't have to do it. 
And for example, in some companies actually integrated this higher security guarantee and protection for authentication, like Apple with their iPhones. They're looking in your camera <laughs> with your face and somehow you authenticate it, but it's not password-based. It's actually two-factor O's. They're done so beautifully that you don't need to think about that. It's the way how we make security useful. It's the way how we make encryption paramount. And it's what we're working with Todd and, again, Talas own to make it all built in. It's what we're talking about. And even templates, Todd, can I slightly disagree with you? It's fantastic, but it still work. <laughs> I need to follow your guidance. I need to follow your things. I need to modify whatever I do. And until we security experts and security professionals will not say, okay, don't. Take the things as it runs in your environment and bring it to the cloud. No changes needed. And all will be beautiful, more secure, more confidential, more integrity ensured. Then we have our customers where we should have them. Otherwise, it's continue to be, I don't want to explain to them, again, wonderful ECC curves and trying to post quantum <laughs> crypto and trying to ensure that your family or my family will understand what we're even talking about. It's not going to happen. So usability and security is absolutely paramount for us to get this world a little more private, a little more protected and sovereignty uh, assured. I think that's a terrific tagline to use is uh, you don't have to do anything. I think that'll be very attractive to people who just find this very intimidating or just a lot of extra work. So there's a couple of other elephants in the room that I think we should address here. And one of them is AI. I mean, everything right now, we're talking about AI in terms of everything that we're doing. So people get concerned about this, again, from a, a context of, you know, am I doing the right thing in terms of, of starting down some sort of sovereignty path for our organization? You know, what are the threats or the benefits that um, we can explain to people about the use of AI? Would that be an appropriate uh, question and topic for our discussion here? Any topic is appropriate. <laughs> and I would be able to take everything that you want. So threats that uh, AI is, if I will mind, because again, and no surprise, Google is very seriously, again, committed and worked on AI for many, many years. So we have some experience with that. But Security of AI, I think if I will bubble up from my mind, there is two big security issues. The first is integrity of your data. Is it your big, large, or even extra large models will be trained on? And because, again, the problem, the data that all of those models will be trained on, have to be what you expect it to be. And this is what we called integrity assured. It means it doesn't have any malicious information that would impact the results of your training jobs. It's one of the areas that, again, actually huge amount of research went into that, how to identify the threats and data poisoning, as we called, when those AI jobs are trained. The second big thing is how to ensure after training those models provide the right privacy guarantee. And what I mean by that, first of all, it can be trained on very sensitive data. 
first. And the result of your training, this model, is actually not exposed. And again, due to IP rights or due to integrity concerns or tampering concerns, and can run in some confidential and integrity-assured environment, so it can't be touched or influenced. And the third thing is ensures that the results that they spill out <laughs> during surfing, during inference, is actually, again, appropriate. <laughs> appropriate and in so many layers, not only from security standpoint, again, temper-assured and not modified, but also appropriate for us humans to consume, as we've seen it has quite a few interesting challenges still with facts and everything else, but it's cut us as a story that we go. So if we think about this from security perspective, I think how to ensure confidentiality and integrity of the data, how to ensure that models is something that you understand what you run, and what and how to ensure that results of those models when they're doing not real inference is actually uh, integrity and privacy and also human acceptable. <laughs> I would say those, those are things that I would be worried about. Todd, what, what is your opinion on this space? Uh, Nelly, I think, I think you're right on again, as always. Um, you know, the, the same data security principles that we've always had applies within artificial intelligence. We're going to get away from it. We know AI and ML are here to stay. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, the jury's out of when we're going to start really deploying those techniques um, in terms of building production code when it comes from a security perspective. But but we do have to be very um, careful to make sure that we don't expose the privacy or the security of folks, as you just said, Nelly. I mean, it's 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 the it, will the AI engine um, be smart enough to realize what it's giving as an answer or what it's providing as a result? Um, it's protecting someone's privacy or some corporate secret. I, I mean, I think there's still some work there to make sure that um, even if you do all the right thing with integrity and confidentiality, to make sure that at the end of the day, um, the artificial intelligent engine doesn't give away something it wasn't supposed to. So that there's still some, there's still some security probably uh, analysis and work that needs to happen in that area. Well, one thing that kind of is similar to the AI ML topic, um, Nelly, and I know that I think this is something that uh, is uh, dear to you, is it, I, I think about, when I think about AI ML, you talked about the training. Um, I think it, what's the power of that is bringing all this disparate types of information together to create a result that could be even more powerful, right? But there could be a lot of private information bringing all those elements together. And then the result may not be something that's secret. But, but the inputs in it could be secret. And you know, I've, I've seen you do presence in the past and you always talk about the Las Vegas um, example, you know, what, what, uh, what happens in <laughs> Vegas stays in Vegas, that old adage, right? And, and so when I think about security of AI and ML, it does apply somewhat to confidential compute in the sense that you need an enclave, a machine, a place where information can come in, you can create an answer and somehow you, know, you validate whether the answer is good or bad, and you can send it back out. So there's still there's still some work to do, I think, the bottom line around the security. Uh, I think we both said that uh, when it comes to AI ML, but no doubt um, the technology is there to stay, and it's going to keep getting better over the next several years. So excited about that going forward. So how does the idea of digital sovereignty flow with or even conflict against the nature of the Internet itself as a global web, the, the global nature of information? Sure, I can I can take this one first. I, I think that um, you know 
the global web is meant to be, we talked earlier about data sharing, uh, the ability to share information amongst people, organizations, companies, countries, whatever. And, you know, it was meant to be a freeform way for us to share. Now, now there's, there's controls, there's gating, there's routers and things that go a part of that. But I think, you know, when you start thinking about the actual data itself, I mean, um, there's data that's at rest, it's in motion and it's in use. And as it flows throughout that web, you know, there is an ability built into the web construct to be able to look at each packet or each frame of data that's going through and uh, place an identity around that and, and, and information around that to say that this, this information, uh, what it is, where is it heading, who's it intended for. And so I think from a digital sovereignty perspective and, and taking that term of web construct, um, the technical pieces are there um, to tie personal identities to that data, to give someone granularity to say that this should be protected. Encryption is already built into this uh, web, this global web, whether or not people turn it on and off, that, that's up for them to decide. But the, the construct, again, is there to have encryption to protect it in different states. So I, I think that uh, digital sovereignty um, fits okay, it fits well within the technical constructs of what is out there called the global web. Um, but then you start getting into the issues of what do you turn on or off based on specific permissions and setup and policies. And so maybe that's more the controversial point. You know, you start restricting what the web can do and, and how it can be used. That's where I think that digital sovereignty might come into conflict with what the global web was uh, originally intended for. Nelly, what, what, what do you think about this topic? Those are just some initial thoughts from, from myself. I think it's very good thoughts and actually it's exactly why the previous conversation is very related because i think in the, the world of global web the whole ideas were to to create this not again limited isolated boundaries between countries between people between organizations when they can again fluidly and freely exchange information in whenever way, doesn't matter who, uh, what, what sovereignty being and what citizenship of their uh, current presence is. And it's, I think it's where there is a conflict, I would say, because from one side, I feel that sovereignty does trying to create some boundary boundary of again what is allow or disallow on different things and how we will keep data in the place we call sometimes is data residency controls and it means again there's a free flow of data might be impacted we don't see it exactly as you said but the good news <laughs> And it's exactly why uh, Windsurf, as it was definitely contributed to this uh, global web creation, was so big supporter of confidential computing, for example. He actually said that it's a game changer. It's the same value it will provide to the world as invention of email, his very, again, famous quote in 2020. But what he's trying to say, I guess, that we can preserve the freelance of internet, but providing technological controls that allow us to protect this data. And then the location of the data becoming less important because the data will be accessed with right sovereign uh, approvals. 
And the data can be flowing between different parties, fully encrypted, but protected and performed or executed on in confidential environment. So the work that we're doing together with end-to-end protecting encryption and, for example, this ubiquitous data encryption that Talos and Google created, it's the attempt to do exactly that. We encrypt data through the whole flow and ensure that decryption is only and only happening in this cryptographically isolated environment and it can be re-encrypted and send it back. So all of that can be done, as you said. It's the principles and capability and technical controls that we enabling to happen. Now the question, how will influence our government and regulation body that they can trust those controls and do not create artificial boundary of data exchange and data traveling? Because I worry, exactly as I'm saying with Las Vegas, very soon people will realize, fantastic, we really greatly isolated, now vote. And it would be the biggest, uh, again, conflict of the world. I don't think we will get there, but it's potential that we can help to ensure that we have solution. So what, again, is the same as usability versus security debate. I think we don't have to choose free web and sovereignty. We can have them both. And it's thanks to what, what we built <laughs> or will continue building. Fantastic. So I think we, we need, even though I, I know we could continue talking about this for a long, lot longer, um, it's always great to, to provide some advice. You know, what can we give as advice for security teams, for individual companies to expand upon this topic in terms of data sovereignty within themselves? You know, what, what should they be thinking about, meeting on, talking about uh, to ensure that they are maintaining best practices to protect that data as we move through our times of enormous change? And if I will start uh, with very provocative thought here. So first thing that they need to understand why not cloud. <laughs> and the reason why it's not because I am, uh, again, part of cloud infrastructure or part of Google Cloud. I think it's very important topic to discuss in uh, LLC level executives, because I think cloud can provide higher security guarantee without so much work from security teams. So what I'm trying to say and bring to us your demands, your requirements, what cloud needs to do better to eliminate the amount of work we expect those companies to do by themselves. We're always talking about this shared responsibility. It's absolutely right. But how much work and enablement and onboarding we can help our customers to accomplish to reach their security, compliance, their privacy goals, all of the above. I I like a lot of what you just said there. Um, For me, and when I... When I talk to CISOs and C-level folks, it's all about ownership of where your data is. You just said it. Is it data at rest, data in motion, and data in use? Where is your data? It, it's all about the visibility. But it's fun, funny how many CISOs and CIO to that point don't, don't have visibility um, where their data is and uh, where it's going. 
And so I, I think that's the first step is really understanding, you know, where your data is at. Um, don't just think about it in rest, like you mentioned. Think about movement, data moving in use. You know, it all has to be protected. And I think that uh, we, we at, at Talus, we like to tell folks discover, protect, control. Those are the three action verbs we use. It's it's a tagline we use, but it's really about finding that critical data, protecting it in whatever way is important to you. It could be through multi-factor authentication. It could also be through tokenization. It could be through encryption, of course. And then there's the control, which is managing that because you do have to manage your security. You, you can't just throw it over the fence and hope that you know someone's not going to steal a key from from 10 years ago. Um, the other other point I would give or advice I would give to the C level is that. Um, not all data is created equal. So we just got done talking about the data. And, you know, Nellie and I just spoke about importance of data. But some things are more important than others. Um, and, and there are some crown jewels that you really need to protect. And it, and it comes back to that visibility, transparency thing again. But make sure that you've identified the data that really needs protected. Put the appropriate controls in place. And the last thing I would say, coming back to um, Talis's relationship with Google, we're, we're not just partners. We're, we're, we're a user, right? Now they were a consumer of Google infrastructure. And, and I think that Google provides uh, a lot of the mechanisms for you to manage your data um, throughout its whole life cycle. And you can do that through external key management. You can do it through the ubiquitous data encryption with confidential compute, but just a lot of different mechanisms there for Talos as even a company to be able to protect our data when we work within Google environments. So, so a lot of things for uh, CISOs to think about, but I, but I think there's uh, hopefully a few nuggets of good advice in there as well too. Well, this is fantastic. I mean, we've now come to the end of our time here together today, and it's uh, a deep dive uh, with some wonderful um, circuitous conversations around the side, and that that always makes for a marvelous learning opportunity for everybody. So I'd like to thank my guests, Nellie Porter, Head of Product, Google Cloud Confidential Computing, and Todd Moore, Vice President of Encryption Products at Talus. Thank you both for joining me here today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Steve and Todd. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Steve, for, for moderating the session. And Nelly, it's always a pleasure um, working with you and, and look forward to us doing it again soon. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and tell a friend or a colleague or a client or all of them about us. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode, another discussion on topics that you need to know about to successfully carry on in the business of information security. So until then, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening.